This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today, I'm very happy to have Clint Watts on the line. So first of all, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. And Clint is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in their national security program. And he also has a very impressive resume um, of experiences as a U.S. Army infantry officer. He was also an FBI special agent on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And he was the executive officer of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. So we're happy to have him on the show here today to talk about Countering Violent Extremism, um, otherwise known as CVE, the acronym, and we recently had a White House summit on this here in the States, and Clint wrote this fantastic article during that time called The White House CVE Summit, What Should We Expect? More of the Same or A New Direction to Counter ISIS, and I wanted to kind of look at CVE in general and look at some of the fantastic points that Clint brought up in this paper. So, as I said, thank you so much for coming on the show, Clint. And let's look at this a bit. So we had this summit recently, last week, here in the States. Um, what, in your opinion, did we get out of it, or did we didn't, that we did not get out of it? Let's look at this. Yeah, so I think the summit in itself was, to me, just a repeat of what I've heard about CV over the past 10 years. You could have almost taken the one out and made it to zero again. You could have put it 2004. And, and I heard a lot of talk to programs that we've tried executing and we do execute. And some of them we execute successfully, but there's been no evidence to really demonstrate these have been successful at disrupting or deterring extremists around the world. And in fact, you could you know almost make the argument that They've had no impact or even a negative impact. I mean, we have more extremists now than we did 10 years ago. And there's no way to sort of show that these programs have been effective, yet we're really doubling down on them in a certain sense. And when I say in a certain sense, we're having a lot of conferences. I don't know that we are running that many programs, you know, writ large, especially in the United States uh, and even overseas. Um, But the evidence just isn't there to support this sort of way that we're going about extremism, in my opinion. And you allude to these programs um, here in the States and overseas, and we do hear about programs that are popping up in Europe. Of course, there's a famous program in Saudi Arabia. Um, How have some of these programs in general been administrated in the past? And how, yeah, go ahead. Right. In the Western context, there's, there's generally two programs that are usually pushed forward. One is the community engagement approach, which will engage with communities, will tell them about the threat of extremism, will send out um, social kind of groups to talk to vulnerable audiences or what we perceive to be vulnerable audiences in uh, disenfranchised communities. And we'll try and identify those that are on their path to extremism and try and move them away from it. 
The the second one is the moderate voices argument, which is really worn, and and that's been around for quite some time. That was you know uh, right there with the winning hearts and minds two thousand seven eight sort of dogma, and that was the best way to counter you know violent extremism is to fight the ideology, and the best way to do that is is to really find moderates in that ideology to have them sort of counter the extremist message, and in both those cases. Neither of them have really proven effective. Uh, if, if you look at the extremism that's been disrupted in the U.S., um, by and large, that's by law enforcement, you know, law enforcement options, which is, you know, doing undercover work or, you know, working through informants, deep investigative work. That's how most of these guys are picked off. And if they're not picked off through that method and, and growing, this is a growing trend, they're identified online. Um, and the reason for that, at least in the West, Western context, is the situation doesn't merit the approaches that are being used. And I think that's what I talked to in the article. For the most part, extremists in, in the U.S. context are individually recruited or ones and twos. They are not recruited from what would be called typically disenfranchised communities. The one exception to that would be the uh, Somalis, uh, Somali uh, uh, recruits to uh, Shabab back around 2007 and 2008 from uh, Minneapolis. And so those approaches that we're using are mostly about engaging communities when what we're mostly seeing are individuals online here in the Western context. I know that they're starting to do a lot of programs to engage in the Somali-American community in Minnesota, as you alluded to, um, the recruits that went to Somalia. And now we're starting to see a lot more of Somali-Americans from that area joining ISIS. I mean, it's not a huge, huge number, but in perspective for a community, it's it's worrying. Um, why do you think it switched to that trend as opposed to going to Somalia, so going to Syria? And also, um, these community engagements, how are they working in Minneapolis? Right. So let I'll start with the second part of the question. I, if we're going to go with these programs, we should evaluate their effectiveness. No location in the United States has probably had more investment from these community engagement type approaches than Minneapolis. And yet, what do we see? The one place where we've probably invested the most in terms of this engagement, we still have you know, young men joining and going to ISIS. So I think that on, in itself should demonstrate that it's not particularly effective. This is the one place we've been doing it, and we still see people from this community you know, going to ISIS. In terms of why they go to ISIS, Foreign fighters and, and, and jihadi recruits are extremely fickle, and they go with winners. The, the second factor of where they go is can they you know, facilitate actually getting there? So part of the reason I think the guys from uh, – there are two factors from the Minneapolis case study about why they went to Somalia during 2007 and 2008. One, that's their ethnic lineage. That's why they went there. You know, They had a connection to that that was beyond just the extremist message. And two, it was possible to get there at a time when it was difficult to get to Iraq. What we see now is ISIS is the flavor you know, of jihad for this year. Um, they've done extremely well in comparison to other jihadist outfits. It's become, you know, with ISIS' success, it's become a place that everybody wants to sort of seek out and go to. So those that are inclined are naturally going to gravitate towards ISIS. The second part of it is it's possible to get there. So unlike how it was for Western Iraq, it was difficult to get there as a Western, you know, American back in the 
eight nine time frame, it's much more feasible to get to uh, Syria today. Which is very worrying and scary because it seems like, like you said, the it's it's an easy place to get to. And if you look at some of the accounts of young people that have made their way to Syria, um, and how they got there, it just seems so easy. Which you just sit there and your mouth drops open. But looking at the White House CBE summit, um, uh, Vice President Joseph Biden alluded to the idea of solving the problems of the disenfranchised community, and that right there would help with countering violent extremism. And that comment really hits you as that's a really tall glass to fill. Um, and as you mentioned in your piece, um, I want to quote you because um, I thought this was a very good quote. You said, properly conducted CVE programs today require a simple, narrowly focused strategy that answers three questions, where, who, and how. So why don't we look at this? Because you really um, bring this out in the topic and of the article, and I think there's some really important things to focus on here. So let's start out with the where. In terms of the where, it, I, I couch it as three theaters, um, and that's where the confusion comes in when you listen to like the vice president's speeches. Are, are we talking about foreign fighters being recruited to ISIS from you know Morocco to you know South Asia, out to Afghanistan, Pakistan, even some Southeast Asian countries? So that's one sort of group. The second group would be Europeans, and that would include the Caucasus and the Balkans. Um, that's where probably the second largest trove of foreign fighters are coming from to ISIS. And then the third and a distant third would be North America. Really, when you look at the U.S., the number that's thrown around a lot is 150 recruits to ISIS. That's actually smaller, I would say, you know, on average than the number of Americans that went to Shabbat, for example, per capita, you know, over time. Or it's right on par. And so when you look at that, it's like, okay, you know, where do we really want to focus at? The CVE summit seems to suggest that we want to focus in the U.S. You know, we're worried about U.S. extremists. And if that's the case, th those assumptions about disenfranchised communities the vice president talked about, you know, impoverished and poor and uneducated, that's, that's not really the case here in the U.S. And, you know, evidence has shown, uh, like Peter Bergen talks about on CNN, that when you research these guys, they're from all walks of life and backgrounds. So why do we think that solving all of their you know, socioeconomic and cultural problems is going to result in them not wanting to join ISIS? That's on the North American context. So if you're going to pick where, I think that really determines what approaches you should, you should, you should pursue. And the question is, are you worried about foreign fighters writ large? If you are, you need to be in the Middle East and North Africa. That's where you should be doing your CVE programs. If you're worried about foreign fighters from the Western countries, then you really need to be in Europe doing CVE. They're the vast majority of them. They're probably 9 or 10 to 1 to the North American cases. And then if you want to be you know, doing it in North America, uh, you've got to be in the online space. And that's one place where we really ceded a lot of ground um, or conceded a lot of ground, you know, We'll let you know extremists sort of run wild online. We'll do some takedowns, which that has improved a lot, but we won't aggressively sort of counter or do monitoring or try and pick out extremists that are there that are inside the U.S. And, and there's a lot of opportunity there 
I think if you want to use a CVE type approach. Um, if you really want to counter the most extremists, then you need to be doing on the ground community engagement type programs, uh, some sort of religious buffering or building institutions or something like that in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia. And we've tried that for more than 10 years and we've not proven any success at it. So I'm confused as to where they want to focus at, but I'm assuming it's really the North American context. And I think the approaches that they keep putting forward don't match up with really the, the threat that's there. And so as you discussed just now, we have this physical versus virtual um, separation of countering violent extremism. And especially the physical, I mean, like if you're on the ground and say, we'll use Libya as an example and bringing up programs, looking just at the situation in Libya, it's very volatile. Um, how realistic is it having programs there potentially that work on this with the situation at hand? Uh, almost zero. I, your number one CVE program in a lot of places like Libya or Iraq is governance. I mean, the reason this extremist can, ex- extremism can run wild is because there is no governance there. It's, it's a vacuum. And so if you really want to counter extremists, the, the number one thing you do is restore governance and end conflict. That's what drives and propels you know, these situations. Let's say you're in a country in the Middle East, North Africa, though, that is not uh, Libya or Iraq, which is a failing or failed state. Let's say you're in you know, Egypt, uh, you're in Lebanon, you're in uh, uh, Jordan, for example. There are other programs that you could be pursuing, and these need to be physical programs on the ground, in your face, you know, dealing with people. So maybe that's community engagement or working with uh, some sort of moderate voice or, or coming up with some sort of social program. It just doesn't make sense when you look at the approaches and how they're applied. If you're in you know, North Africa, Middle East, South Asia, you don't, you don't have to go online to find this extremism. It's a secondary. It's a reinforcer. But you're surrounded by whole communities which are propelling this message of extremism. So if you really want to counter that extremism, the recruitment, you've got to be there on the ground face-to-face with, with how these folks are being recruited. And then looking at Europe, going back to Europe, as you said, out of the Western, we'll call it Western countries, Europe has a much more higher rate of young individuals going off to Syria, let's say Syria today in this theater. Um, Why do you think that is compared to North America? I think it's because of the way their system is structured in terms of their immigrant community. So they, you know, I put it at 50-50. You really have two sort of extremist case studies that broadly come out of there. One, you have, you know, groups of guys that are from vulnerable communities that are recruited and brought to Syria. And and then you have the other sort of oddball, which is the um, person that encounters, you know, Islam, then quickly moves to extremist Islam, and then quickly, you know, moves to become a foreign fighter. And, and that person maybe comes in from the online setting first and then gets integrated in these disenfranchised communities. So you've really got two scenarios there. The, the latter, the oddball uh, sort of convert who quickly gets uh, radicalized, that's more similar to what we have in the United States, I think. And then the disenfranchised community part is different. That's We have maybe uh, the only parallel we have is the Minneapolis scenario, and I don't even think it's the same. 
But in Europe, you have these whole immigrant communities that haven't integrated into society uh, the same way that we see in the U.S. And therefore, you have the numbers, you know, the, the numbers of extremist recruits that we're not seeing in North America. So now looking at the virtual theater that we were talking about just a little bit ago, um, you're mentioning, like, say, on Twitter or Facebook, uh, taking down accounts. I mean, there's this whole idea of whether you should take down accounts or keep them up, because, of course, keeping them up potentially for law enforcement provides details that you might not have if that account is gone. And there's a fine line. Like, I I have mixed emotions on this. Um on Twitter, for instance, I've had people that very much have radical jihadi views tweeting things at me that are quite disturbing at times. But there's this idea of, should we keep these accounts up? Should we not? I mean, let's look at this debate a bit, because it's really important, I think. So for the most part, I think research, especially like J.M. Berger has done, has shown that takedowns do disrupt the communication of the propaganda and do... Um, disaggregate the audience. And so the Shabab case study is the first one in that Shabab's Twitter account was taken down several times. And you really did see a lot of the loss of momentum in their online community in terms of their supporters. It's just like if you were sitting at your house and you were watching a TV channel and you've got stations one, two, and three, you always watch channel one, channel one goes out. Then you go to channel two or three Channel one comes back, you try it again, it goes out again. Eventually, you start to move away from that channel because it's just difficult to access and it's not there. So it does provide an opportunity uh, when you're doing disruptions to to break that message up, the extremist message. What The second argument, which is for law enforcement and intelligence people, they need this to understand what's going on the ground. I think that's mostly put forth by uh, researchers like myself who rely on the internet because they can't rely on the other intelligence sources to try and figure out what's going on in those places. And it would dramatically hurt the open source independent researchers' ability to understand what's going on on the ground. So I I think that's somewhat uh, a selfish argument (laughs) about why we need to keep those up. And in general, you know, I, I don't think anyone's really talked about what are the consequences of moving them off social media platforms. Let's say we do. I think this will probably happen over time. You're looking at, okay, the options then is they're going to want to continue to communicate. It's going to disrupt them. So how are they going to maintain their audience? So they got two choices. One, they can move sort of backwards into the old model, which was these password-protected forums, which they still have. You know, Al-Qaeda has them and ISIS has them as well. And, and you have password-protected forums where they put out communications. Um, they control who the users are, and they control what the message is. I think that's pretty outdated. I don't think you know, the younger folks are going to want to move back to that sort of system. So the next thing would be look at evolution rather than sort of devolution. And evolution would be they start building their own applications. They build their own web portals. They build their own tools, or they build their own social network separate or, you know, residing outside of the traditional ones. And I think that is a likely scenario that they'll try to achieve. Now, the question becomes, do they have the resources and the skills to sort of keep that going? Could they do that in the future? And so ISIS has shown that they're pretty technically savvy. I think Jan Berger does a great job of capturing that. 
Um, but could they sustain that over the long haul? And then what are the options the West and other countries have in terms of countering that as well or taking those platforms offline, which really moves into cyber warfare? You know, like that's a, a very different thing to look at. So we've tackled the where that you addressed in your blog post. So why don't we look at the who? You mentioned, and I'm going to quote you again, that programs that target extremists as a whole without clearly identifying where the extremists are and where they reside on the spectrum. And, um, you know, instead of programs, um, you should have programs that focus individually. That's what you're, you're looking at. So let's look at the, the who again. Right. I, in the Western context, I think, is what we're looking at. If you look at the spectrum, and generally, I'll just break it to three categories. You have the vulnerable audience um, that might be receptive to the extremist message. You have those that are radicalizing already, so they're already in the pipeline. And then you have those that are committed, law-abiding supporters um, who were maybe foreign fighters or maybe involved in the past and know, you know right up to the line what they can do in terms of supporting their cause. And so Will McCants you know, does an excellent job of laying all of that out. Uh, in some of his articles. And the question then is, okay, where do you want to focus? And then deciding, like, okay, how much effort I'm going to put into this. The way it's gone about now, it's really amorphous. So it's kind of like, well, we think we want to focus on vulnerable people through community engagement, and maybe we'll pick off one or two that are already being radicalized. And I think you see that in some of the stories, you know, the anecdotal stories that are coming out. The, the second part is the sort of law-abiding supporters. In the U.S., we don't have that many. We have some. Um, but a lot of the law-abiding supporters who are, are really propelling this are online. And so the, there's some great you know, case studies about the Australian cleric and you know, uh, some other folks in Europe that are part of this, especially in Britain, they have this problem. And those are sort of the key vectors for the extremist message, the propaganda, and how do you, do you want to focus there and try and really crush the vectors of it? Or do you want to focus on this sort of amorphous, vulnerable audience that's out there that might be receptive to it? That No one does a good assessment on this. They sort of just pick things based on what seems like it makes sense. So, for example, we, we decided to do CVE programs in Minneapolis after, you know, I think more than 20, 22, you know, men went to Somalia. It's probably too late, right? Like the the swamp has already been mostly drained. You've already got a lot of recruits that have gone there. Now we're assuming that that whole community is vulnerable, which may not actually be the case. 80% of the vulnerable audience may have already been recruited. So there's no real good uh, assessment system that I've seen for figuring out where these vulnerable audiences are if you want to focus on them. And if you're going to do that, which I encourage you know these programs to do, you start in the online space. The best way to figure out where you know the vulnerable audience for extremism is is to start in social media. That's where you figure out, okay, this is the community of vulnerable people, and then you can determine where they're physically located, so that you can more nimbly try those other programs, which might be, you know, community engagement or interdictions through like face, you know, face-to-face engagements with vulnerable individuals. Something else you alluded to in this piece was the idea of. I guess you could say the moderate voices or voices that counter the extremist thought and ideals. And you referred to the idea of having 
an older generation speaking to the younger generation and how potentially there's not a connection there. Um, it's almost like your mom telling you something or your dad telling you something. And so you alluded to having young, younger individuals speaking to younger individuals that might be going down this radical path. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because I think personally looking at a situation, if I was in a situation like that, I'd probably be much more open to hearing things from my peers as opposed to someone that's 30 or 40 years older than I, and I feel like I'm getting lectured, so to speak. So can we, right. can we look at that? For some reason, with our CV programs, we've ignored what we've learned in every other program where we try and you know engage young people, is that parents and old people are poor vehicles for communicating a convincing message to 18 to 24-year-olds. This has been proven throughout history, probably for centuries. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the, the two main vehicles we're trying to get at these vul- potential vulnerable people. And not that we shouldn't do that. It's great to bring awareness to parents, you know, because they might tip us off. Uh, you know, it's excellent to get, you know, religious leaders, community people together. I think that's all great. But what, what really doesn't, you know, uh, resonate for me is why we're not using the story of former foreign fighters or returnees or defectors to be the communication of this is what really happens when you go and join an extremist group. I'll compare this to the war on drugs. Uh, everybody remembers, like back in the 80s, Nancy Reagan, you know, saying don't do drugs. They remember the D.A.R.E. programs where, you know, law enforcement would come around and tell you the dangers of drugs. But nothing was as effective as seeing a, you know, recovered drug addict or a friend die of drugs uh, at deterring a young person from wanting to use it. We have the same scenario now. So yes, the messages of Alaki are powerful. And uh, uh, the actions of Baghdadi or uh, Bin Laden or Zakawi or whoever are strongly motivating. But you know, foreign fighters are like ants. And when one goes and they're successful at getting there and they communicate back to their community, their peer groups, hey, I got here, this is great, it's everything we thought it was, we tend to see an exponential recruitment effect now. And that's what happened in Minneapolis. One or two go, they're successful, and that really motivates the rest of their peer group to come and join. We've seen that on mass scale, you know, global scale now uh, for Syria. And so if we want to really take down that narrative, which is this is great, I'm a foreign fighter like you, I'm participating in battle, I'm fighting the jihad, then we got to come at it with the same messenger, which is I was a foreign fighter, I thought I was going to be doing this, but what it turned out is I was involved in violence that was unjustified, criminality. Uh, I was not part of the group. The ideology isn't what they say it is. And communicate that back to this vulnerable audience. We haven't really tried to do that at all that I'm aware of. Personally, I think that right there, that's a golden ticket. Although the problem is a lot of these young individuals that go there tend not to make it back. They tend to be, I hate to say it, but cannon fodder a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, Right there, that's so important, that narrative of, hey, I signed up for this. This is not what I thought it was going to be. You need to see the reality of this before you travel to Syria and follow my path. There are quite a few defectors now, I think, floating around in Turkey, Mm -hmm. you know, that have come out. And, uh, you know, a lot of Europeans that have gone to the battlefield and returned, I I think there's a lot of options. And you don't need hundreds of stories. You only need five, you know, or three to get started. Um, to sort of change that narrative. And I, I'm, 
I'm shocked that we haven't gone to this approach yet. And why and, is that, do you think? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why people haven't tried to employ this more. It's been used in other counterinsurgency campaigns before, you know, this sort of defector model, uh, them talking, you know, about what they're doing. The other thing is the way that that message is, I can tell you the first way governments will try and do it is they'll just take the defector, they'll park them in front of a camera, they'll talk to them for two hours, it'll be extremely boring. Then they'll throw it up on YouTube and be like, here you go, here's our CVE <laughs> message. And it's like, that's totally wrong, too. Like, okay, you got the right messenger, but then that comes to the medium, you know, which I also talk to. You need to make a message, a counter message, which is on parallel to what the ISIS guys are doing. If you watch the ISIS videos, you know, they're showing young foreign fighters out there doing battle, talking about how wonderful it is to be in the Islamic State how they're doing governance, how happy they are, you know, about what's going on. You've got to tell it in the same way, a very engaging narrative with really slick video production and show the other side of it. And, and they're just, no one's doing it. I'm not sure why. So why don't we look at the how now? Um, you mentioned that the last decade of CVE measures are, tri- are tired and they have been proven ineffective. Why is this? I mean, I know you alluded to it slightly in the starting with the talk, but let's look at this a little bit deeper. Mostly because they're not sure what they want to achieve uh, or where they want to achieve it. You know, they don't answer the first two questions, which is where and who, you know, like where are we going to do this and who are we going to focus on? They don't do that. So they're just sort of writ large. And that's why you'll always see their evidence of their successes. There was a young boy and he was about to join, you know, ISIS but we had this moderate cleric, and he went and talked to him, and he talked him down off the ladder, and then he didn't go. And that's a great story. And those programs are great. I, I think there's plenty of room for them. I'm not saying they should be abandoned, but they're not applied in a targeted enough way that they are going to create any sort of measurable gains against the, you know, the extremist recruitment that's going on right now. And, and uh, there just seems to be from the outset no one specifically saying, this is the audience we want to focus on, and this is where they're at, and this is we what we want to see happen. They can't clearly articulate that. It just seems interesting listening to you just now um, that it almost seems like these programs, even though they have a slight idea of what they're aiming for, it seems like they're all over the place, so to speak. They they don't have a major focus and a process to get there. I mean... Am yeah, I misunderstanding it's, it's that? It just seems really worrying. Oh, it's true. It's a smorgasbord of social work, you know, thrown under the umbrella of CVE. And these are programs that on all of them are great, you know, on their own for whatever reason. But I'll give you one that I saw. There was a, a guy at the summit, I saw the quote, it was like, you know, a lot of these guys in Syria, they can't even read. You know, they're not even literate, and we need to teach them how to read was sort of the message. And I, I almost laughed. I was like, we want everyone to read. You know, like that's a symptom of all sorts of things, especially, you know, in criminal, you know, areas. But right now, because we are so not engaged in the information space, you know, online or on the ground, we would literally be training people to read so they could only read extremist propaganda. Like that would be the only thing available to them, I would think, when they come out of this system. You know, they're not going to learn how to read and then read about how wonderful the United States is or Europe. They're going to read, 
you know, Dabiq or, you know, Inspire or some version of that, you know, whatever their language is. So I thought that was rather odd that that was sort of thrown out as like, this is a solution to counter extremism to make people educated and literate. And I was like, well, education's great, but education, you know, without any other sort of alternative, but extreme, you know, Islam is, is probably not going to help us, you know, counter extremism. In fact, it might actually accelerate it. And looking at the Islamic State and the reports we have coming out, we're seeing a lot of reports on Islamic State setting up schools for young children, children of born fighters that have arrived there. And you look at this and, and you just instinctively know that what they're going to be taught is basically this extremist, violent idea of the world and those who are with us and against us. And it's very worrying because you're getting a whole new generation of, I hate to say it, but people that are brainwashed into this thinking. And it's going to be a huge problem. It's going to continue on uh, whether it crosses into borders or not. You know, I'm, I can't say that, but we definitely need programs that are going to potentially counter this. So, I mean, looking at this, how... Like, in a nutshell, how can you create potentially positive and effective programs in CBE? The first thing I think you got to do is engage in online space, not just because it's most important with North America, but that illuminates where the pockets of extremists are. So if you want to know where the hubs of extremism are that you would want to engage even with on-the-ground programs, you need to get in the online space. And that doesn't mean just sitting and watching. That means actually engaging people with some sort of a program. So, you know, I put forth the defector video, you know, the compelling defector documentary narrative videos, which I think could be very easily done and promoted really well in the online space. But those are essentially, you know, putting, you know, meat in the water to see where the sharks are. Uh, you know, once you do that, it will create a conversation in the online space, which will tell you these are the pockets of extremism on the ground where you can apply programs like moderate voices or community engagement. Right now, we just we don't really know. It's all anecdotal or whoever pushes the hardest. So if there's a jurisdiction like in the U.S. that says we really want to do this, then they might get it. Or if there's a jurisdiction that's like I have a community engagement program that was for drugs and I want to keep it funded. I'm going to now push for it to be a community engagement program for CBE. That's another approach that I've seen. And, and so where we got to start is on the where, you know, like where do we want to focus? And to do that, we should be in online space. And I think Defector Video is the best vehicle. The other thing I like about Defector Video is it, it translates across all three theaters. So if you do it right, you can do it in multiple languages, and that video can be broadcast into multiple communities. So it's a multi-front you know, tool that you can use to illuminate where these hotspots are so that you can use other programs. So that's why I like that as well. I, I doubt that that'll happen. You know, I, I've sort of pushed this for, I don't know, three, four, five years, and I, people like the idea of it, but then there's no real traction around how to actually do it. That's, that's very sad. Why is it? Why does it just stop? Because listening to you and, and looking at my own interest in research that I've been doing, to me that sounds like, like I said, a golden ticket right there. And for some, for a community, say here in the States, that has just had a White House summit on this, that clearly 
wants to hash out ideas and wants to talk about this topic and thinks it's worrying for it that to just fall by the wayside when it really seems like a fantastic way to start countering these ideologies. It just yeah. is mind-boggling. Well, I think it's because there's no one really in charge on the CV stuff. There's no like single, you know, executive who, who is responsible for it. Uh, two, they've chose because it was the, uh, you know, when your hearts and minds uh, counterinsurgency dogma era when that that document was written. They chose the whole of government approach that we need all of these parts of government involved. And I would tell you, there's more people. I would think the number of CV. Uh, proponents and liaison officers between all the different agencies probably outnumbers the number of extremists in the United States. You know, we created this huge like bureaucratic architecture around it. And each of those uh, organizations, it's not their primary mission to do CV. It's their, you know, what? Who knows? Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth mission. And so it's lightly funded when it is funded, and then it also has to support whatever their primary mission is. So if you give it to law enforcement, it's community engagement, and I'd also do arrest in the community, which undermines it. Or if it's you know, social work, then I'm going to push a uh, public health program or something that I already have you know, in place as the solution for CVE. I'm not going to develop or create something new. So that's why I think you don't get really well-tailored approaches for CVE. I think you get mostly leftovers from all the other programs these agencies know how to do pretty well. And community engagement in drugs is one that law enforcement knows how to do really, really well. They've done it well. And what about outside of the government sphere? What about independent organizations? Is it just a matter of funding and support again? I mean, would it be possible? I think so. Yeah, I, I think there are groups that are starting to crop up in different places. And, uh, uh, you know, Humera, uh, Khan, I think she does a great job with some of the groups she works with. But those are lightly funded and sort of applied you know, loosely, uh, uh, so they're not going to get the effectiveness that I really think they need to get. Um, and some I had looked at was I, I'm more than willing to put the videos together, and uh, I, I don't think it's that difficult a task. But trying to push that through the government interagency process for CVE, what we would get a video out probably sometime in 2018. Oh, nice. You know, like it, it, it just it's exhausting to try and navigate through that. I, I hope that there'll be some sort of outside group, like an NGO-type uh, group, that will take that on. And, and I think it could be done pretty cheaply. So to conclude this talk, we always like to give our guests a moment to touch on something that we might have not touched on in the talk or final statement. So I want to pass over the floor to you. Okay. So amidst all the CVE talk, I think it's interesting how we're really – Picking on ISIS, which I think is great. ISIS is full of terrible people that need to be dealt with. But avoiding some of the other bad actors and behaviors that are also involved in what is the Syrian conflict and how we somehow think ISIS can be defeated without resolving Syria and by backing the bad behavior you know, of others. So my closing thoughts would be you know, sort of two points. We're very upset about ISIS beheadings, but I think uh, as of last count, you know, Saudi Arabia had beheaded twice as many people um, since uh, the start of the year that, than ISIS had. And conversely, you could compare ISIS atrocities to the Assad regime, and you would see that they've barrel bombed 
probably more civilians and, and kill more innocent people than ISIS has at this point. Not to defend ISIS, because I think they need to be destroyed, but we haven't addressed any of the larger sort of problems. So ISIS is the easiest bad guy to pick on in that region, and we're not really focusing on any of the other things. So CVE is just sort of a drop in the bucket. CVE is uh, uh, extremism, extremist problems for Western countries, not, not for the Middle East. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. And we will post the link to your talk, or not your talk, excuse me, your um, blog post on the FPRI blog, the one that we've talked about here, so that our listeners can read and get into the discussion themselves. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on.